Hi, it's me, Ben. We have a new sponsor that I'm very excited about. It's Comedy Bang Bang, the new show on IFC that starts on Friday, June 8th at 10 p.m. Uh, it's the show that's based on the podcast that Scott Ackerman does. Scott is so ridiculously funny uh, and such a great guy. Please watch this show. It's an absurd half-hour comedy show that only looks like a talk show. Uh, Amy Poehler sits down on the couch for the first episode, I believe, uh, and you can watch it before it premieres if you go to ifc.com or go to the Comedy Bang Bang on IFC Facebook page and view it there, which I have seen, and it's really great. Uh, it's it's a really good show, and I think they're doing ten episodes. Comedy's so nice, they banged it twice. I feel uncomfortable saying that, but uh, the show is so good that I'm over it already. Scott Ackerman, again, is the host. Reggie Watts is the band, the whole band. Reggie is... Amazing. Uh, if you haven't seen Reggie's stuff, you can also see that on ifc.com. They have some outtakes and stuff. Um, Scott's going to have some amazing guests, some of the biggest names in comedy. He's got Amy Poehler, Seth Rogen, uh, Zach Galifianakis, uh, all, all kinds of really funny people. I know Andy Daly did one, uh, Paul F. Tompkins. So please check out Comedy Bang Bang. It starts on IFC on Friday, June 8th at 10 p.m., uh, and it's a great show. Check it out. And now... Here's our show. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Let's do it. We are uh, lucky enough to be here in beautiful Culver City uh, at the Justified offices with Graham Yost. Thanks for being here, or thanks for inviting us here. Oh, great to have you guys. Thanks. Um, listen, you've been on my wish list for a long time. There are like four shows that I love right now, and Justified is the top of the list. It comes up on every panel. Every writer is watching this show. You know, that is so nice to hear. I will tell you, in the writer's room last year, the show that everyone talked about was Breaking Bad. <laughs> and we've even got some weird posters up. I forget the character's name because I haven't followed it closely enough, but um, who ended up missing half of his face. Mm -hmm. So there's like that was up all over the office. And it was people were like, that's a spoiler. You can't put that up. And, <laughs> and then this year, uh, that was this year as well. Uh, this year, there was a lot of Homeland talk. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, but. Um, but, yeah, you know, no, it's you know what it's this is this is the best time in the history of television. There are just you know I I joke that there's just too many good shows because it's very hard to get noticed. There's just you can easily without breaking a sweat come up with a list of ten shows that are some of the best shows that have ever been done. And to even be considered as part of that list is this is not false modesty. This is it's true. I mean, well, they're all such high quality. They shows. are quality. Well, right? you know, looking at a poster on the wall here for Boomtown when we did that, that's all like ten years ago now. Yeah. There weren't that many shows that were had the had similar ambitions at that time, and so um, yeah, we didn't get nominated for an Emmy, didn't win anything, but won some things. But 
it was sort of easier to you mm-hmm. know wave your flag and have at least critics take note. Mm-hmm. Now it's there's just so much good stuff. This it was this was actually something I wanted to get to, and I thought we'd get to it much later. Oh, okay. but, uh, I'm sorry for all. No, no, on. but but really, I mean, I feel like Justified is often overlooked in the current landscape, and it's not. You know, people are watching FX. You know, people are talking about Louis and American Horror Story. Um, but again, it's such a high quality show. Do you think it is that there is this pro- proliferation of quality, uh, and so it's just another one in the mix? Let's just use the word plethora. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of it. I don't know. Uh, our ambitions on on Justified, this, this could sound sort of um, like I'm trying to set the bar low so it's easier to clear, <laughs> but um, – we really do. Our target is, I think, like Elmore Leonard's target is, uh, is to really entertain, in his case, entertain the readers and us, in our case, the viewers, um, and, and, and do it in, a, in a, as you know, much of a quality way as we can, um, you know, make it a smart show. Um, but the goal is really to entertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, my vision for the show from the beginning, and I share this with FX and I share it with Tim Oliphant and all the writers and the rest of the cast, was just that sense. We wanted people to really kind of rub their hands and say, I, I want to know what crazy stuff they're going to get into next week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's what we try to do. Yeah, I, I think you're succeeding. Um, let's talk about Boomtown for a second. It actually comes up a lot in these panels as one of those shows that – I think writers especially responded to. Uh, tell me about that show. I I missed it. I must have been in college or something. Uh, so thank God totally... you didn't say you were in high school. No, no. no. Um, in fact, I may not. I may have even been after that. But I, you may have been in was, utero at that time. No, it no. was uh, uh, one of the funny things is. Uh, uh, I'm going to see someone tonight, Brown Johnson, who I worked with at Nickelodeon back when we were doing Hey Dude. Sure. And I've had a, at least one experience where I was riding up in an elevator at CAA and one of CAA and one of my agent's assistants was riding up and said, I've just got to tell you, I've been a big fan for years and, you know, uh, you did something that really affected me. And I was expecting Boomtown or more, more often than not, it's Band of Brothers. Sure. And this, this this young person said, hey, dude. And uh, I just laughed. And because we'd always sort of, you know, imagined that that time would come. And then you turn around and the time has come. Oh, my God. Um, that's so funny. You know. Well, when I put a word out on Twitter today to say, send me your questions for Graham, I got more hey, dude questions. Fantastic. Go, dude. That's, that's the kids on Twitter, I guess. The kids on Twitter. <laughs> These kids today, their hair and their music is just noise. No, uh, you know, hey, dude was a, a great experience. Um, Boomtown, um, you know, I started I started with hey, dude. And then I went into Full House and yeah, Powers you were that a comedy guy. I was a comedy guy, half hour guy. And then came up with the idea for Speed, and that took me into features for a bunch uh, of years. And then um, Tom Hanks was doing From the Earth to the Moon, and I got was lucky enough to get involved with that. And was still writing features, but my TV agent would ask every year, did I, had a, did I have a show to pitch? And in 2001, I did, and it was Boomtown. Um, I actually had two different versions of the show. The, the, the central conceit of showing things from different points of view – was the same in both uh, iterations of their ideas for the show. Um, and she, her advice was, yeah, do the cop one. I had this other one that okay. was going to be set among a, like a UN peacekeeping team in Bosnia. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so I went the cop route and I love Los Angeles and it all kind of fit. Um, yeah, that show was, 
Why do you think it had the effect that it did on, like I say, especially on so many writers? Uh, we had Amy Berg on a panel last year who spoke so highly of her experience. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I was talking to another writer um, about Boomtown and, and also Reigns, which was a short-lived show um, that I worked on. Uh, back in 2007, I think, what, 2006, 2007. They were both very conceit-heavy shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the whole hook of Boomtown was seeing things from different points of view and really trying to hit home as much as we could that we all carry our own, you know, filters and views and we see things in a certain way and it's not necessarily the way other people see them. Um, and... You know, I, I think that Boomtown works better on DVD and would have worked better on on pay cable hmm. um, because the commercial breaks kind of threw would throw one away from. And you'd come back and you'd see a, a, a this title card up of a character's name, and it's like, now which one's that, and where are we, and what's going on? It was a little disorienting, and um, you know, I think there are many reasons why the show didn't click, but. Um, I, I think that that the conceit appeals to writers. Mm-hmm. They like that idea of that sort of intellectual construct, and it was sort of a fun thing to do on a TV show. Um, oh, that makes sense. And I, I think you know, I, also the whole reason for doing that is so you can go perhaps ever more deeply into character and why mm-hmm. and and go behind the scenes with these characters, and so they present a certain face to the world. And then when you see what's really going on in their home life or whatever, you go, oh, so that's what's really going on. Mm-hmm. That's why they are like they are. And I think that appeals to people too. Absolutely. Um, it just didn't appeal enough <laughs> or to enough people. Which happens. Yeah. It happens I, to the best of them. Yeah. Um, was the show broken in a traditional mystery sort of way? Kind of. I mean, we would come up with the A story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is this episode going to be about? about what's the 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 crime the mystery the whatever you know we're either trying to solve a crime or prevent a crime it's sort of how the the we found that most episodes went um and then we would look at it from the character's point of view what is something interesting that this character character could bring to this situation one of the hardest things we had to do you know, struggled with was fitting in the reporter, um, Andrea Little, played by Nina Garbiris, which is why she didn't appear in the second season. And I think that was probably one of the reasons the show didn't work so well in the second year as well, because she was fantastic and it was an interesting character. But, you know, my vision of doing a show about a city um, over time develops, you know, it just gets pulled by the inertia of television into being a crime show. Sure. And so. The political aspect, the you know, the newspaper aspect, all of that kind of would fall by the wayside, and you just end up focusing on the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that was a show that came, you know, right out of my head and right out of my heart. I did have um, a sense of of how to break story, and um, a, the process in that first season was me learning how to explain that to the writers' room. Interesting, and basically just sort of help help break the stories mm-hmm. um we hear this from a lot of people about their first experience in show running you know even for those who have been in rooms which you had been although no i like never comedy really, rooms, most comedy right? rooms i'd never been in a an hour-long room yeah. so which what is was just crazy that, in this business yeah what was the crash course and because you're running a show for the first time right? yeah and it's just camp. one of those things because i had a certain amount of uh, credibility and features mm-hmm. and i'd worked on from the earth to the moon and um, and at that point, yeah, you know, we'd also done Band of Brothers. So, 
it was the kind of thing where, oh, well, if he wants to run the show, we kind of have to let him. <laughs> you have enough you know? credits. I've have had enough credits, but sure. I didn't have – I had certain experience, but not directly applicable experience. Right. So. There is that fear, and I remember talking to Tim Crane about it at the time. He said, "Yeah, there's no school. Yeah. You know, the, the closest to a school is is rising up through the ranks, starting as a staff writer, and then mm-hmm. over the years, you know, just climbing up uh, the credit ladder." And I didn't have that experience, so I'm sure they were nervous. I know I was a little <laughs> bit nervous. Um, I had directed an episode of From the Earth to the Moon, and I'd been um, a, a producer on that, so I had I had a certain amount of television experience, mm-hmm. but. HBO is very different from from the rest of sure. television. Um, so the you know the answer was to have me hire strong number twos. Um, in this case, it was Chris Brancato and Bert Salky, who had run shows and did know how to do it. But they were, I I interviewed a bunch of people for that job, and they came in and their eyes were just wide. They just loved the pilot. They'd seen it, and they they were just, and they had done a a pilot for a show. I think it was called Dope for Fox that didn't go forward. But it was also L.A. and gritty and kind mm-hmm. of real and, you know, upstairs, downstairs or north of the tent and south of the tent right. or rich and poor and all that kind of L.A. stuff. And so they were completely wired into doing Boomtown and they were very helpful. Also, I was really smart, but at uh, had a shot at hiring Michelle Ashford, mm-hmm. um, who had run um, L.A. Doctors and, you know, worked on a bunch of shows, very experienced, but she was pregnant and have her first child so we had to make this weird deal where basically we got her for three months that was it you know and just try and squeeze as much as, sure. out of her as we could but she did things like okay here's the schedule this is when the outlines have to be in this is when oh, the first right. drafts have to be in all that kind of stuff um which you end up kind of ignoring but at least you have an idea of you've, you've got a concrete um yeah, a notion of when you're really having in that, trouble. Yeah, having you that know, touchstone like, goes. Yeah, it's way. just okay. At least, and 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 Fred Golan on this show uh, does that, and uh, you know, will just kind of alert me to the fact. Yeah, we're doing okay, but we've <laughs> got to finish breaking this one by the end of next week, or we're really screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the thing. I'd never run a room, and uh, I had to come in and suddenly do that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But I did think, it go? Did it go all right? You know, you know, you'd have to eyes? ask them. You'd have to ask them. Uh, <laughs> from I, your I, perspective, from my perspective, it was fantastic. From my <laughs> perspective, I was the best showrunner ever. No, um, no, it went okay. Uh, I think that the big thing was is that I knew what the show was. Or I, mm-hmm. any show finds itself. You right. know, you find out. Oh boy, this character is more this, and that actor does this better or whatever and these stories are better mm-hmm. for us and those ones not so much we've certainly gone through that and justified we were just going through that with reigns when we got the, <laughs> the the rug pulled out but um with with boomtown at least i i really knew what the goal was and i had a pretty good sense of these characters and they they did develop but it was something because it came out of my head and out of my heart that um i think i had a sort of a it's sort of a creative moral authority in the room mm-hmm. because it really was my show. And so even though I didn't know how to run a show, that was, sure. you know. And, you know, I, I think the other thing was yeah. I was very open to what anyone had to say. So as much as I knew what I wanted, I was really interested in, in hearing what other people had to say, That's you true. know, other ideas. Let's um, let's talk about those from the Earth to the Moon and Band of Brothers for a sec. Uh, how were those run? There was no room, you say. Was it basically freelanced 
episodes? Yeah, From the Earth to the Moon was completely freelanced episodes. I can't even remember. That's now 15, 16 years ago, uh, which is just crazy. But if there was a um, sort of you know original writer who was crafting the outlines, mm-hmm. I know Eric Bork was very involved in that, and Tom himself was, Tom Hanks. Um, but it didn't have – I don't believe it had that sort of – one guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was based on a book by Andy Chaikin called Man on the Moon. Was that what it was called? Anyway, now I'm forgetting even that. But, um, you know, Band uh, had Eric Jenderson, and Eric was the original guy on it and helped draft the Bible for the show and oh, the I characters see. and the stories. It ended up changing a lot, um, but at least there was one person who was shepherding it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Pacific, um, very much so, was Bruce McKenna's baby, and I was brought in, you know, a couple of years into the, the project, uh, into the process, to sort of help um, corral things and get it ready for production. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the reality is, you know, with From the Earth to the Moon, with Band of Brothers. And with Pacific, the showrunner ultimately is Tom Hanks mm-hmm. in a way because he, especially from the Earth and the Moon, totally his vision um, and uh, his passion. And it's something that, that that I share with him and everyone really on, on the project, just this love. You know, we're all space geeks. How did you get involved with it? That was just a call from my agent. They oh, said really? Tom Hanks is doing a miniseries about Apollo for HBO. And uh, I went in, I read the outlines and uh, – the one I wanted to do was about the fire in Apollo 1, and they already had a writer assigned. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take anything. And then the next day they called back and said he fell out. Oh, wow. So I said, sign me up. And that, you know, that was one of those really kind of life-changing um, things. Um, you know, working with Tom was uh, just a kick. But also uh, he backed me when I asked if I could direct an episode. Uh, they put me on as a producer. Um, writing that episode about Apollo 1 was a very moving experience. Yeah, tell um, me about that for a second. I mean, obviously you were interested in the history of it already. You knew the story. But how did you go about designing the story? Well, um, And what had been outlined already? Not that much. If I remember, not not that much had been outlined already. Mm-hmm. It was just that that's what it was, the episode was going to be about. You knew the event was there and that was yeah, this episode. Yeah, and I think – I'm trying to. I, I stole something, mm-hmm. and I'll be perfectly honest. What I stole, and I'm trying to remember when that actually entered my mind. And I said, "Okay, that's the way to approach it." What I decided to steal was um, there was a movie that came out around that time called Fearless, um, directed by Peter Weir mm-hmm. with Jeff Bridges, um, about a guy who survives a plane crash. And that film opens with Jeff Bridges um, running through um, a cornfield. And he's kind of scorched, and he's got a kid with him. And we don't know what has happened. So the, the film essentially starts after the crash. Mm-hmm. You don't see the crash itself until the last um, act of the movie, um, where it plays against this spectacular piece of music and uh, is one of the most heartbreaking things you can ever imagine seeing. If you haven't seen the movie, it is, it's, it, I think it's a, a, a great movie and one of Peter Weir's masterpieces up there with Master and Commander and... and uh, you know, witness and uh, his other great movies. But anyway, so that I, I thought, okay, if if we're going to do this thing about the fire, let's not show the fire until the end. Let's start mm-hmm. immediately after, or while it's happening, but we see it from the outside. We're not in there with them. And so then I thought, well, this this suggests that it's a mystery. And Frank Borman, who was the uh, commander of Apollo Eight. 
uh, he was put in charge of, of basically finding out what happened. So I thought, let's essentially do a detective story and let's have Frank uh, be our detective and let's have him figure out what went on. And so that's why he, he takes us from character to character and he finds out more and more trying to figure out what went wrong. Then there was the other story, which was about Joe Shea, who was the head of the Apollo, the capsule program, basically at NASA, and uh, and Harrison Storms, who was the um, the project manager at uh, uh, North American, which then became Rockwell, essentially. Okay. But so they were the contractor. Shea is Shea essentially. It's a Shea is the network, and he's the he was the <laughs> studio, um, and their relationship. And what happened between the two of them, and how the blame was allocated, and what, and and that was a, I knew that would be a core part of the story. Mm-hmm. So it was a mixture of this mystery story, detective story, with Frank Borman as the detective, and pulling from Fearless the idea of holding off on showing what happened until the end, and then this character thing between Joe Shea and, and Harrison Storms. That's interesting. So that was how it sort of came together, and you know, I read, you know. Senate testimony, congressional testimony, I read a lot of stuff, um, have since found out, you know, got some things wrong, um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, we sort of paint Walter Mondale as not, you know, the, the most honest broker in the whole thing or that he had a bit of an axe to grind or was maneuvering politically or whatever. Um, really probably not entirely true. Um, <laughs> But, you know, and there are other people who have, you know, grander conspiracy theories about Apollo 1. You get anything like that happening, you know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of very strong feelings about it. But, you know, I, I'm very proud of the script, very proud of the episode. Sure. And that was the first right time right. I got to work with David Frankel. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a blast. So Yeah, it seems like um, you've kind of gathered a lot of these people and work with them again and again. Do you have writers or even, you know people in the production that you've worked with on Justified that you've been with in the past? Well, uh, yeah, a lot. Um, Nick Searcy um, played Deke Slayton in Apollo in the uh, right. from the Earth to the Moon uh, with a hairpiece that he doesn't uh, <laughs> where he would love it if we could write it in. You know, maybe do a scene that's set 10 years ago when he had hair or something. But he um, he was uh, and, and there are a bunch, a bunch of Apollo, uh, from the Earth to the Moon people who've um, either okay. appeared in Justified, Fred Lane, um, as I said, Nick, uh, the props guy worked on it. Oh, really? uh, there was a uh, an AD when we were shooting the pilot who worked on it. And we joked a lot about it. Um, There's a sound guy uh, who, you know, so and some of them are just happenstance. You mm-hmm. just show up in the set and it's like, oh my god, you're here. <laughs> um, but the big one from the from from the Earth to the Moon is Matt Craven, and mm-hmm. that's the first time I worked with Matt and met him. Um, and he, uh, um, you know, big part in Reigns, um, smaller part in Justified because I just knew that the part of Art Mullen should be played by Nick Searcy. Mm-hmm. And so Matt gets, you know, is, plays Raylan's first boss that we see in the pilot. And we see him a couple other times. And sure. I mean, it would be great to see him some more. Um, well, and he's got such a presence, too, when he does appear. It's, yeah, yeah it's exactly. Kind of Matt, Matt is great. Back. And he, um, he, and then, you know, I wrote the part for him in the Pacific in the episode that I, I got to direct. And then there was uh, an idea for another actor and whose Tom was pushing for, and that just fell through at the last minute. And it was basically calling Matt, and he said, yeah, I can be there. And he got on a plane to Australia, and the next thing you know, we were working together again. That's fantastic. Um, The Pacific was brutal. 
Pacific was brutal. <laughs> yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about writing and directing on on that. Was um, it a similar process? Was it sort of mapped out? Uh, it was mapped out. McKenna had really was. mapped it out, and he'd hired other writers, and most of the scripts were already written. And then there was a, a big change a few months before production where we took one script and divided it into two, and I took the second half, oh, and Michelle yeah. Ashford took the first half and made those halves into holes. Um, and, um, yeah, I threw my name to the hat to direct, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and that, and in this case, it was it was Steven Spielberg who went really, <laughs> yeah, okay, why not? You know, he, he, right. I think he, he had the confidence as as did everyone that there was going to be a great crew. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're going to have great DPs, great first, sure. great Tony Toes running production. Uh, he ended up directing an episode as well, so you kind of knew that any episode was going to be in safe hands, and if it. If the dailies didn't look great, people would step in and say you need more coverage or whatever. Um, and there were a bunch of episodes to choose from, and I chose the one that I, I did the rewrite on mm-hmm. um, and it because it focused on uh, on Leckie's mental state. Mm-hmm. And um, it was smaller in scope than, than some of the other episodes. Yeah, r- remind me what – happens in that well episode the episode how they, far into it was it's it? it's the fourth episode okay. they've uh you know the first two episodes are the the hell of guadalcanal the first mm-hmm. one about lecky and then the second one about john basalone mm-hmm. on guadalcanal the third episode they go to melbourne and they get that great right. respite of basically almost a year they spent there um and then in the fourth episode they're going back into the fight mm-hmm. and so it uh it that's the one that starts with them on the deck of a of a transport and it's Christmas Eve and they're singing carols and the next thing you know they've gone into Cape Gloucester on New Britain and um, they were there 150, 200 days something like that and it just rained you know 98% of the time so and it was a really tough period for them all uh, for for everyone who was on Gloucester not the most horrible in terms of combat there were some Mm -hmm. rough battles and rough nights but it was just more of a psychological thing, mm-hmm. and then, then they got you know sent to um, basically a staging island, Pavuvu, and uh, it wasn't raining, but it was crawling with rats and rotting coconuts mm-hmm. and hermit crabs, and it was right. it had its own misery of boredom and stuff. It ended up becoming a place with you know a film theater and a canteen. I mean, it, they made it better over the, the course of the war, mm-hmm. but at that point it was it was a rough rough go, and. Um, so when I was looking to expand, it had been – the old version had Melbourne in the first half of the episode and Gloucester in the second. And so when we decided to make Melbourne an entire episode and then the next one an entire episode, I it had originally just been Gloucester and Pavuvu actually. Mm-hmm. And then reading in Leckie's book, he talks about going to Banica or Banica, um, which was a nearby island close to Pavuvu where he essentially was in the loony bin. Mm-hmm. And – you know, it was really interesting trying to read between the lines of what is Lecky admitting to, sure. how much is what is real, what is you know, and so that became the whole second half of the episode was him with this Navy shrink. In the book, he calls him, oh, Doctor Good Doctor. I'm trying to remember. Hmm. He he liked him, but it was it's, so that became the part, part that Matt Craven played. Um, so it was an interesting episode to shoot. Um, we were in the jungle in um, in Australia, and we had rain gear set up, and it was just raining all the time. Um, and so we did that for you know ten days, and then we 
the whole production moved up to Melbourne or down to Melbourne, mm-hmm. and uh, then we shot all the uh, the psych ward stuff out mm-hmm. in our our main sort of area. And I remember so vividly. I mean, you had a great actor. I forget his name now. Who played Lucky? Oh yeah, James Badgedale. Yeah. Oh, James Badgedale. Yeah, Rubicon. Fantastic. And, um, and the the psychological journey that he goes through over just over the course of the series is just harrowing. Yeah. And now I, I mean, I remember that episode particularly. Was it tough as a director getting him there, and as a writer getting yourself there? You know, I wish it were tough because I'm <laughs> writing about a guy who's basically having a breakdown. But, you know, we're all writers. We're all kind of slightly, you know, we're, we're all here because we're not all there. But um, it that wasn't so hard getting into. Lucky's material in the book was, mm-hmm. you know, gave some good insights. And then, you know, working with Badge, I'd never worked with him before. Um, and he was just fantastic and just really – you know, just seized on the opportunity to explore some things. And, um, and you know, working with Matt is always a joy. He was just really just fantastic. And and he really enjoyed working with Badge. That's great. You know? That's great. Um, and uh, then we had this guy, Tom Budge, who played the, the guy. And it was interesting because in the book – like he talks about the kid and seeing this one guy who he, he, he gave nicknames to everyone in the book because he didn't want to offend people or didn't want to get sued or whatever. But he talks about the kid having been someone that he knew from Gloucester and had been at Pavuvu who he then sees in the cages and he finds out that he had tried to steal a plane to mm-hmm. fly home, that he, his mind had snapped. And so we that was one of the things in sort of crafting the miniseries with McKenna and Tom and everyone – was to um, set that character up. So we hired this great Australian, young Australian actor, Tom Budge, and he played, um, you know, we set that character up. And I'm, I'm trying to remember what we called him. But anyway, mm-hmm. we see him in the, you know, the early episodes yeah. on, in Guadalcanal, and he's always in the background. And then suddenly he pops into this scene. And uh, that was an amazing day, doing that scene. Um, Anyway, it was a great experience. Uh, yeah, that seems amazing. It's fantastic. But you, you said before that it was brutal, and that was McKenna's whole goal. As really? he said, we're going to make a $200 million anti-war movie. Wow. Um, you know, we we wanted to show. It was his – you know, we'd done Band, which is sort of a celebration of these guys. And it's not mm-hmm. by any stretch pro-war, but it gets caught up in the sort of glamour and excitement of the whole thing because sure. these guys are – it's a little bit. It's horrible, but it's a little bit of an adventure, and it's this camaraderie and this mm-hmm. team. It's a little more naive, I feel like, in, in a way. And 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 the Pacific War, all war is terrible, but the Pacific Camp Theater yeah. was worse. Um, there was no Paris to go to for R and R. There was no London to go to for R and R. There was no. Re- they would go to Pavuvu, and again, it was crawling with rats and rotting coconuts. Um, so. It was, and they were fighting a culture where there's no, there's no one on your squad yeah. who knows Japanese. Whereas in Europe, there were guys who knew German, and they, there was a, lip, there was a cultural similarity. This was, um, you know, for them a completely alien culture and just rife with with racism. And mm-hmm. that wasn't really a part of of the American experience in um, in uh, in the European theater. Um, obviously, 
they confronted the most horrific racism right. of all time. But <laughs> it wasn't sort of – they weren't racist towards yeah. the Germans and, or vice versa. Well, the, the foreignness – I mean an alien place absolutely comes through in that in every episode. It's really yeah, and, and, and also just um, you know, a decision was made very early on um, by Steven Spielberg and other people that you know, band was done in a very uh, desaturated color mm-hmm. palette. And that Pacific would be actually very vibrant greens and blues, um, the ocean and the blood, the yeah. red. And so you have, you know, this battle being fought in paradise um, or what we think of as paradise. And that was an interesting juxtaposition. It's interesting. But too. the whole idea Sorry. was was to just let's show it as as it was and as brutal as it yeah. was. Um, you know, uh, Okinawa was just hell on earth. Uh, Peleliu was hell on earth. Mm-hmm. Um Guadalcanal was bad, but there is a descent over the course of Pacific, over mm-hmm. the Pacific from Guadalcanal, which is bad. It just keeps on getting worse. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it was McKenna's notion, um, and I think everyone's, that, you know, we got to bring them home. We need to have a sense that as horrible as this was, and as, as much as their lives will be forever scarred and even to degree stunted, that we can see that, you know, the quote-unquote generation, greatest generation, this is where... This is where that's, you know, started to actually flower back mm-hmm. at home. So interesting. Uh, it's interesting to, to me as well that you know those kinds of creative decisions about the color palette and you know the way the story, the the grander story was ultimately told, came sort of from the top down. I mean, from these guys, from a Steven Spielberg to right. say we want these colors to pop is kind of crazy. Well, you know, I mean, he, you know, he came up with various dictums for, for band, which is, you know, the whole notion of being under the helmet, hmm. that he didn't want the uh, camera to rise much above shoulder level. That's um, and then my friend Mikhail Solomon directs an episode and he puts a crane in it. And he <laughs> somehow gets it by. I used a crane in the episode in the Pacific and people were saying, he's using a crane? This is against the rules. Well, next thing you know, everybody's using cranes. <laughs> you know, Tony Toe in his episode, he's got cranes flying all over the place. But um, but we st- always at least psychologically tried to keep mm-hmm. it um, within the, 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 the template of Saving Private Ryan, which is let's be as real as possible and um, have it feel – immediate and visceral um especially in combat it feels like this is something you've kind of done in a lot of your work i mean even in in just talking about boomtown where you're looking at this mystery and you're looking at the different perspectives on this crime uh but you're getting the stories of those perspectives you know every character certainly in justified but also in boomtown and also in these uh these miniseries every character has a story you know, and I I haven't seen many series dig that deep into sort of tertiary characters or giving a point of view to characters who just exist to give information. Uh, I can't imagine this is something you were doing on sitcoms, but this had to arise from somewhere. Uh, is well, this something you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, I am. I I would say two things. One was right after Speed came out, I got a I got a, a nice job. Um, goofy title was Operation Dumbo Drop, and I sure. didn't I didn't get a credit <laughs> on it, but I got to go to Thailand, and I'm working with Simon Winster, who was directing. He's an old friend. And I got to meet Ray Liotta and Danny <laughs> Glover, and and spend a you know a couple hours chatting in a bar with Dennis Leary, who I was a big fan of, and you know and Dougie. Anyway, it goes on and on. But um, one of the producers, Robert Court, we were talking about this Ray, Ray Liotta's character. 
And the way I had first written him, and I was doing a rewrite, mm-hmm. so I didn't come up with the character. But the way I was writing him, that he was this kind of hard ass and by the numbers and all this stuff. And 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 Robert Court said one day, he said, you know, remember, you know, every character is the hero of their own movie. And it was a simple thing. It was something that, you know, I wish that I'd gone to film school and that someone had said, you know, you have to remember this, you know, because it's kind of late in the game. I've already been working for a bunch of years. But it was that really sunk home that day. And, and I don't remember it all the time. And, there are, you know, I'll take the same shortcuts that any other writer in this business will take. And the character just becomes, um, oh, that guy. Um, but it is something that, you know, I try to remind myself. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing, frankly, was doing working on From the Earth to the Moon because um, now I, I was dealing with, with real people. And um, – you know, I was terrified when I sent the script to Frank Borman for review, and what was he oh, going to wow. say? And, he, and you know, I find that Graham Frank Borman's on the line. Hmm, hello, <laughs> Commander Borman, and he, um, you know, he had very small notes, and I was I was just That's so funny. relieved. Um, and one thing you find out is that most people understand what movies and TV are, yeah. and what we have to do, and condense things and move things around, and. You know, as long as you don't make them seem like an idiot. But that's that's a big thing. Is I, you know, I I do, and and, and Elmore has this too, which he treats his characters with a lot of respect. He yeah. enjoys his characters, and in generally, I enjoy the characters that I'm writing too. Um, and with El with Elmore, he you know basically said if he doesn't enjoy a character, if they can't keep up, then he, they just wander out of the story, or mm-hmm. they get a bullet. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was talking to. Elvis Mitchell a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And one thing he posited, he said he was also talking about character points of view and, and um, giving them their due and, and all of that. And he suggested it might have something to do with a, a sense of Canadian fairness. And I want, so. you know, maybe there might be some part of that, which is, um, you know, growing up in Canada, there is that sense of, if someone's got a really strong point of view, you go, okay, that's interesting, but, you know, have you considered the other side? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, there's something in there. Growing up in Canada, uh, what what was the kind of stuff that you were watching, that you were listening to, that you were reading that would, you know, later fuel you? Um, you know, not well known in the States, but my dad had a show on in Toronto for 25 years mm-hmm. all about movies. And... Um, I didn't realize it was all about movies. It was all about movies. Oh, that's Saturday Night at the Movies. Oh, so you must have been inundated. It was inundated with movies. Um, put it, he had a previous show on CBC called Passport to Adventure, um, which was a, a aimed for kids. It was a Monday through Thursday show where he'd take a movie and cut it up into four parts. And So anyway, everything was movies, movies and books. Hmm. Um, you know, pretty much he, he died last year, but pretty much almost, you know, the – almost right up to the end he would be saying what have you seen what are you wow. reading That's um, so it was a big part of our family life yeah. and um, so basically saw everything you know I, I was for Canada uh, and our rating at that time was under 17 you couldn't go mm-hmm. that was it um, so my parents snuck me in to really? see The Exorcist when I was 14. Holy my dad shit. says, just walk between us. Just don't <laughs> stop. Just keep moving. And he hands the tickets and we just walk right in. 
And, you know, it just scared the crap yeah, out of me. what did that do to your brain? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, we all came out. We went to a restaurant nearby, and I was sure that the waiter was in league with Satan. I mean, it was just it's so disturbing. But it was, it, but that, that was one of the things where it's like, this is a very powerful medium. Hmm. Um, sure. You know, one Christmas he rented – this is before VHS and, you know, home entertainment mm-hmm. systems. He rented a projector. And a 16 millimeter copy of King Kong and showed it in our living room. Um, my brother and I paid him back years later by renting a copy of The Adventures of Robin Hood and projecting it oh, like one Christmas night. But um, so it was a real film heavy um, family. Um, there's a you know one of the there's a thing in IMDb under in my listing where it talks about my dad. Uh, Citizen Kane was on TV he said you're going to stay up and watch it it started at 11 o'clock and he let me sleep in and wrote me a note saying you know Graham is late for school today because I had him stay up and watch Citizen Kane (laughs) and he uh, he was hoping for a fight he was hoping that the school would say well this isn't a real excuse and he would say it's every bit as important as reading Charles Dickens and I don't know why I'm doing a stupid sort of English accent but anyway he um, so that was uh, you know a big part of why I became a writer that's fascinating. Uh, what was the stuff that really stuck to you? Were there specific? Well, you know, in terms in terms of movies, the big adventure films, you know, Great mm-hmm. Escape um, had a big effect on me. Oh, sure. um, you know, listen, I remember he would get me to see things that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get The Godfather when I was twelve. It took me a while. I didn't get Citizen Kane the first few times sure. I saw it. Um, but I just liked the you know most. Although two thousand and one kind of got me even though I was a kid I was well it was just so awe-inspiring to look at Mm -hmm. Um, you know I really watching movies but the big thing for me was getting into Lord of the Rings when I was 11 or 12 and that really took over my life for a bunch of years wow what was it in that 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 clicked for you I don't know I don't know I don't I can't remember if I'd gotten into any science fiction before that but that really took over my life Um, you know I became a member of the Tolkien Society of America. I got their newsletters. I had posters (laughs) on the wall. Um, And we ended up all reading it as a family, sort of one by one. My dad had started it, and he told me about it. And that's that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. He told me about this story of Gandalf and these hobbits and stuff. And he had read it for a little bit and then stopped reading it. And then I picked it up. and, And I had a hard time getting through the first... 100 pages or so and it was my brother who said as soon as you get past Bree and that's when Strider Aragorn comes into the story he said it really picks up and so I pushed on got, and then I was gone and you know I read it a bunch of times but um, so that was and that got me into science fiction and other fantasy and so I read all of C.S. Lewis and you know various other people but um, that was that was a really big part of my life hmm. I mean there was a point where I thought that I was going to be coming an academic, and I was going to really? follow in Tolkien's footsteps, and I was going to study Middle English and wow. Old English and all that stuff until I took Old English. <laughs> and I'm, you know, as my high school French teacher said to my parents, he was German, but he taught French. Mm-hmm. He said, "Mr. and Mrs. Yost, Graham is not a linguist." <laughs> and it was like I could, uh, I had a hard time with language. That's so. hilarious. Um, so, where did writing come from? I mean, obviously, this was dad. all fueling it. Uh, At what point, though, did you say, this is something I can do? Or even say, this is something that people do for a living. I could do that, maybe. There's sort of three things. One is that my dad was always working on um, an adventure book when Mm -hmm. we were kids. And he would 
he would you know tell my brother and I stories as we we're going to sleep. He invented a few stories that he later then wrote up into two hmm. books, but he um, um, was always working on a novel. So I knew this being a writer thing was a possibility. And then one of his closest friends from summer stock was Bernard Slade, who um, was a Canadian writer, actually born in Britain, but Canadian writer, who moved to California. And he and his wife and their two children would send their Christmas picture of them sitting on the diving board of their pool with oranges <laughs> from their backyards in their hands. And it's like, that is paradise. Okay, that. He wrote, I think, 30 or more episodes of Bewitched and then created the Partridge family and Love oh, wow. on a Rooftop and stuff. And then when he kind of had enough of you know, TV development and, and, and the, the vagaries of the network world – um, wrote a play called Same Time Next Year, which mm-hmm. became this big Broadway hit. Sure. And my dad and I went to the premiere in, in New York and all this stuff. Anyway, so Byrne was an example of, of a writer being not only make a living, but really successful. And um, so he was always a goal. Hmm. And I knew it was possible. Um, so between my dad and, and, and Byrne, um, that was sort of the, the impetus, I think. And then a friend of mine took a screenwriting course at Tufts one summer in Boston, and we just sort of talked about it. I said, screenplays? What does that look like? And that's when I started writing. I was about 18 years old, mm-hmm. um, and I wrote a lot of screenplays before I sold Speed. I'll tell you that. Sure. A lot of screenplays. Sure. Very, they- some very, very bad screenplays. Which you have to do. Right. And then some started to get you know, a little better. I remember a breakthrough for me was writing. I had an idea about doing a murder mystery set at uh, sort of like the National Enquirer. There used to be a sister paper called the Weekly World News. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I had this idea of, um, this is someone you wouldn't know, but Janet Cook, who had won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of pieces she did in, in the Washington Post about young drug addicts. And then it came out that she'd made a big chunk of it up. And they pulled the Pulitzer and all that. I thought, what would ha- what would it be if a writer like that ended up working for the Weekly <laughs> World News? And it's still kind of an interesting idea. And so I did the first draft, and it wasn't great. But I thought, no, this is this is good. This the idea is good. And so I kept at it. Wrote draft after draft after draft. Nothing ended, ever ended up happening with it. But it was a really good exercise in learning. Um, you know, as my friend Rabbi Obishan says, quoting someone else. You know, writing isn't writing; it's rewriting. Sure. And so that taught me a lot. Yeah. Um, and then anyway, it just kept on going from there. And what was the first thing that kind of got you attention? You know, I mean, it was really – it was a real attention with speed. Yeah. I, 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 I was in New York before speed. Um, a friend of mine was working at Doubleday, played on their softball team. I went out to watch him play, met a girl at – Double Day, who I had a, developed a mad crush on. We went out on a couple of dates, and I'm making air quotes, because <laughs> then I found out she's living with a guy. Oh. Um, but, uh, no, she was fantastic. I ended up going to their wedding and stuff. <laughs> but I met met her, her you know, eventual husband, and he was working at Nickelodeon. And mm-hmm. he introduced me to people that were doing some oh, just little goofy things. And one of them was Adam... Adam Bernstein, um, who then went on to direct, you know, numerous episodes of the of Oz. And he did Adventures of Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon, and mm. you know, the pilot for Scrubs. Anyway, um, that got me introduced to Nickelodeon. I wrote uh, a pilot for them that um, didn't get produced, but they liked the writing. Mm. When Hey Dude came along, that was their first scripted show. This was before any other animation, really? before Rugrats, before that. anything. And so that was my big break. Mm-hmm. You know, then I was getting paid to write dialogue. Mm-hmm. 
and they liked what I did, and they asked me to be the the writer on the set. And uh, then I ended up being the head writer for the second series, uh, the second chunk of episodes mm-hmm. we did. And that was, and then you know, after that, I was hoping that they would offer me some big development deal. Um, I'll have to ask Brown Johnson about that when I have dinner with her tonight. But um, <laughs> they didn't, and I was really upset. But I had this idea for a movie about a bomb on a bus. So when you were on Hey Dude, and it was uh, just a regular staff, right? They actually there had... was no there was no room. Oh, it was really? All essentially freelance. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was all just who knew anyone. Oh, we know this guy. Let's oh, give him wow. a shot at a script. But then they had a writer on set, and then there was a writer okay. on set. Uh, it was me in the first year, and then it was Lisa Malamud in the second gotcha. year, pretty much. Um, and you had been doing features up until then. Did you? I was writing features, but no, they I weren't mean, selling. Features, yeah. You know, and, and but that I, had been your practice. Yeah, but I was interested in TV, and I think I wrote a spec head of the class. That's what I was wondering. Did I you wrote have a spec to head of the class, but there? I didn't. No, that didn't get me into Hey Dude. What happened was, so Hey Dude finished, no deal. I write. Um, I wrote a Roseanne and a Murphy Brown mm-hmm. as my spec samples. And um, had a friend who was just becoming an agent at ICM. She ended up moving to CAA, and I followed her a few years later. But at any rate, um, she said, these are great. I think I can get you work. But staffing doesn't start until May. Mm-hmm. And this was February. So um, that's when I wrote Speed. I had time. No kidding. And I thought, well, I think this is a good idea. The and idea I, had been percolating. It had been percolating. My dad had told me about it. He had told me he had heard about a Kurosawa script, and he loved the idea of Kurosawa script about a train that couldn't slow down or it would blow up. And that became Runaway Train. But when I saw Runaway Train, and my dad always changed things. He always made them better. <laughs> he We called it redirecting. Um, you know, it's just they can't get to the brakes. But my dad's idea of it being a bomb, I thought, that's cooler. And then I remember thinking that day, coming out of the movie theater, yeah, it'd be better if it was a bus. You know, a train yeah, is cool. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. The train, a train is very linear. And once you get the train outside of the city... You just get helicopters to get everyone off. Right. Um, so the bus, anyway. So what were some of the early steps in, in trying to get that story down? You know, I, I, I knew it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I wrote um, several drafts of an outline. And I'd been writing with a friend up in, uh, in Toronto um, who's now a Shakespeare professor and dean at Simon Fraser in Vancouver. But I said, Paul, I want to write this one by myself. And he said... Fine, and I sent him the outline to get his feedback, and he said um, he didn't. He didn't. I don't think he changed. Maybe he changed the title or suggested. I think my, well, my first title on the first outline was minimum speed, and then I realized <laughs> you don't want the word minimum in the no, title of any no, movie. <laughs> um, and so he, uh, but he said uh, make it fifty miles an hour. I had it being twenty. That's hilarious, you know. And <laughs> he also had another idea for the money drop. He was. The, the guy who came up with the idea of the dropping the money through the through the uh, garbage can and the hole in the pavement, um, Paul Budra. Anyway, uh, so I did outline after outline, and I first outline didn't have the elevator sequence at the beginning. He was a bicycle cop in Santa Monica who stumbles onto this thing, and then I thought, you know what? I need a history between the good guy and the bad guy. I need something in that first ten pages, and. Um, Mark Gordon has always said to me that he he thinks it's the, the first ten pages is the reason why the the thing sold. Really? Um, it was well executed, and I knew I honed it, I worked on it, I That's had cool. friends read it, um, and it still had a long way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, the the first draft 
once it gets on the bus, it stayed on the bus right to the end. Mm-hmm. There was no subway sequence at the end. I still have some issues with the subway sequence, but that said, um, How so? it did change a lot. I feel that the emotional uh, climax of the movie is when um, Jack and Annie come out from underneath the bus mm-hmm. and they're in each other's arms. Sure, you've and, been on that bus. You've been on the minutes. bus, and and they're they're hugging, but they're not. They don't have to kiss. It's enough. We know mm-hmm. they're together. That's it. You know, we've won and everything. And then it still feels to me like the subway sequence is a bit of an add-on. But that came – it was a note that was given by Paramount, which was the first studio that owned it. And they said, it can't all just be on the bus. So (laughs) I said, well, what's another – we've got an elevator. We've got a bus. (laughs) Let's do the subway. Um, There you go. Anyway. Uh, Interesting. So so after Speed – uh, a series of this kind of action movies. Did they kind of come to you? Were you out pitching things? Uh, were you pitching your take on properties? No, I wasn't really pitching my take on properties, but um, that's what we have they, to do now. They were they were my. I mean, Broken Arrow. Um, I'd heard the term from a friend of a friend, someone that Ramy Obishan, a dear mm-hmm. friend of mine. He was at AFI, and there was a guy, and he he told me that the notion of Broken Arrow the idea of a lost nuclear weapon and he had a notion about louisiana swamps and stuff and frankly that just i never heard from that guy again and so on but i that title stuck with me and i like the idea of uh the uh the southwest i like i've been hiking in that country um i thought it was very dramatic and be a good place to set a story um so that you know that sold pretty fast hmm. and i think that mark and i always joke that the studio was surprised when the draft came in, and it was, and it was as good as it was. Wow. Um, but um, was it, it was just? Like, it was Damn just it! Now we clear, have to make it right. It was just a clear vision from the go of what this movie should be, roughly. But then you know, then John Woo comes on sure. board, and I get the joy of working with him and going to see Wild Bunch with him. And, oh wow! You know, uh, that was just that was fantastic. I'm not a, the biggest fan of the movie, but. Um, you know, it that's was, the way to see it, though, with John Woo. <laughs> I, you know, exactly. No, Wild Bunch. I'm a big fan of. Oh, okay. Broken Arrow, eh, but um, and then uh, Hard Rain, which started as the Flood, that was also an original idea. And um, you know, again, working with Mark Gordon um, and Christian Slater for the second time. I think it's a better movie than it never caught on. Um, I even had friends saying they came out and they felt wet. <laughs> um, and I ran into Morgan Freeman last year, and I said, Morgan, you might not remember me, but I wrote Hard Rain, and he just looked up at me and said, 88 Days Underwater. Um, <laughs> although he said it with his fantastic voice. Right. <laughs> um, it had all the gravity. And all the, yeah. <laughs> it was a tough shoot. But, um, yeah, so there, I, I was, you know, I was, gonna, I was this one of the, one of the action guys mm-hmm. um, for that period. And then I got the call, you know, to work on From the Earth to the Moon. And that's... That's when my writing, as I say, really sort of changed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm forever grateful for getting that job. Do you feel comfortable in television uh, or more comfortable than you did in features? Or is it just a different muscle or is it the same muscle? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's an ego component and getting to be a showrunner is it's fun to be boss. Sure. You know, um, I mean, we're in the age of auteur TV, right? Yeah. Um, which I which is no not not in features unless you're the writer director mm-hmm. you know and even then it's all the focus is on the directing but um, the truth is you know I think the the great directors are also great writers to an extent you know they have they have that mm-hmm. structural sense and character sense and I think I think great writers have some 
directing sides to them. They understand movies that it's not just writing. You're mm-hmm. you're writing for an image. Um, but television is is you know I think it's a I think it's perhaps the best place for dramatic writers um, and I think comedic writers right now. Sure. Um, but uh, you know that said, I still look forward to going to see what's ever in the. At the Del Monte Center in Monterey, where I live, you know, um, or at the art house downtown, uh, you know, I just love love movies. There's just something, you know, with my upbringing, my dad, you know, I used sure. to I used to say that we didn't go to church and that movie theaters were our church, and that's we would go in and the lights go down and everyone gets quiet mm-hmm. and you see a story and uh, um, you learn lessons from it. So um, I still love that process of going to see a movie. Sure. Let's uh, let's talk about Justified for a little bit okay. before we wrap up. Uh, I think how you got involved and and your take on the characters and working uh, with uh, Elmore Leonard is sort of well trod. Uh, but maybe we can cover it briefly. Sure. How I mean, did you get you know, into this? I mean, we're doing this interview here it's in beautiful Culver City, which actually is beautiful. We're so lucky. You guys are we're, in the best lot. Oh, we are so lucky to have offices <laughs> here. Um, it was so nice and quiet coming in. I, I know. love having meetings here. <laughs> It was, uh, you know, I had a deal at Sony, and we were looking for something to do. Um, Sarah Timberman and Carl Beverly had, through Sony, optioned this novella, Fire in the Hole, by Elmore. I've been reading Elmore since um, La Brava, which is early, mid-90s, or 80s. And so, um, you know, I was predisposed to like it, and I loved the fact that it wasn't set in New York or L.A. or even in Detroit or Florida. It was different even for him, this, this Kentucky setting. And I just love Raylan Givens. I'd read, hadn't read, I bought Pronto, hadn't read it at that time. I've since read it, but I'd read Riding the Rap, so I knew Raylan. Um, and I like the idea of doing a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that era, if you think just back, you know, I think four years ago was when we were pitching it and then writing it, it was still sort of pretty heavily anti hero, and especially yeah. in cable. Uh, Sopranos, Shield, Nip Tuck, you know, resting me focusing on the FX shows. Um, so it seemed like it was something that could be fresh, and that appealed to me. That's really interesting. I mean, I think Raylan is not – he's such an old-fashioned hero. Yes. You know, uh, was there any pushback on that? Did you have to give him a drug problem? Was there any uh... – Well, I, I joke that, you know, FX wanted to go a little deeper. John Langraff loves the idea of sort of deconstructing mm. the American hero or the myth of the American hero, which we've done to a certain degree with Raylan. Um, and I always joked with him that at the end of the pilot, I said, I know what you guys want. You want to hit Raylan to go home and go down into his basement, and there's a 19-year-old boy chained to the wall. Exactly. And um, everyone laughed, ha, ha, ha. And then I sort of did that, and we did that in this third season, but we made it the bad guy. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was um, – they, they weren't looking for a drug problem. I, I think that as soon as we'd mention something like that, because we kicked that around, we would go, ah. You know, that just feels like mm-hmm. that's been done and been done better than we're going to do. Um, yeah, you can have a complex hero with a dark side where yeah. it's not. Listen, this guy you know, drinks like a lot. He does. Right? He is a heavy drinker. <laughs> and he doesn't shoot his gun as much as he did in the first season. Mm-hmm. That was a real conscious choice by, uh, by Tim. He said, you know, almost as if, like, I'll give you an iPad if you can limit the number of people I kill to three, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I remember you saying that in another interview where it really was a conscious choice. Uh, that first season, 
felt like it played in Western tropes a lot. Yes, it did. Whereas the more showdowns guys. and stuff. I mean, you know, listen, John Langraff said, he said, basically, I want to showdown every episode, but it doesn't have to be two guys on the street or mm-hmm. two guys in a bar or two guys even across the table like the pilot had or the dining room table as the pilot ended with. Um, you know, we had this scene at the, the fifth episode in the second season where the final showdown is really Raylan talking to the teenage girl and trying to get her to take this phone so she can call him if she ever needs help. And it's just, you know, battling a teenager is every bit as dangerous as battling someone with a gun in a sort of psychological way. Um, so we, we've played with that trope mm-hmm. in various ways. But um, and was it something you guys consciously talked about in the writer's room? Uh, the, the not having them shoot people, yes. Interesting. And, uh, you know, we even had something in this season where Raylan was going to shoot. The guy was going to pull on him. He was in the uh, episode where Dickie gets out of jail. And um, Ash, the the um, uh, the prison guard, the mm-hmm. prison guard was going to pull on Raylan. And Raylan was going to shoot him through a bag of groceries. And, and Tim just said, you know, I wouldn't mind running over him. I just don't <laughs> want to just shoot the guy. And so we came up with this great running over him gag. And... Nice. Uh, I, I wish, think it's by great the way, because back, it was backing up and hitting him, which makes the makes it funny. <laughs> it does. I have to interrupt right here because when you said Tim said, you took on this elephant persona. Oh, really? That was amazing. Oh, <laughs> I wish people could have seen I, I that. I can do Tim. You can. Uh, that was we've been so working strange. together long enough that uh, I'm sure I'm sure he could do his impression of me. Too. <laughs> Let's talk about actors for a second. You've got an amazing cast on this yes. show, and I mean, again, looking at everything you've done. You have some heavy hitters, and you get great performances out of the actors that you work with. Uh, talk specifically about Justified, maybe even about this season, uh, casting, working with them. Well, you know, I mean, getting the, the guest cast in, getting, um, you know, we struck gold in the second season. Well, even the first season, we had people yeah. like Alan Ruck and, uh, you know, other people popping up for an episode here and there that were just mind-blowing. The, the, the ability to get Stephen Root to play our judge, and then we just have so much fun. It's like, Stephen, if you're available, we've got another part, you know, another episode for you. And you've got you. him for three minutes. Yeah, it's exactly. Killer. He's just so so much fun. But... Um, <laughs> In the second season, you know, we had the Bennett clan and getting uh, Margot Martindale to play Mags and Joe Lyle Taylor as Doyle, Brad Henke as Coover, and, um, you know, of course, Jeremy Davies as the uh, uh, gimp-legged and wild-haired Dickie. Um, but one of the big finds there was getting Caitlin Deaver to play the kid, and we knew that if that casting didn't work, we had a backup plan. We were, that character was going to disappear and then show up in the last episode. It was just... We didn't know. And then we ended up getting this fantastic actor, Caitlin. And uh, between that and Margo, we knew we had a season. But I didn't know any of those people, except for Jeremy. We knew Jeremy was interested in doing the series. And so when we hit upon the character of Dickie, we said, let's offer that to Jeremy. In the third season, we came up with the notion of the character for what we called the carpetbagger, then became uh, Quarles. And knew pretty immediately that I, um, you know, we wanted Neil for that. Um, similarly, when we came up with the character for Limehouse, we knew we wanted T, mm-hmm. Michael T. I'm one of his friends. I can call him <laughs> T. But so then having worked with those guys, knowing the kind of stuff they enjoyed, could sort of write it to that. That's and cool. then you get feedback from them. And, you know, uh, our second to last episode is airing tonight as we speak. And then we wrap up the season next Tuesday. And if you watch, you'll see what happens to Quarles. And some of that was stuff that was suggested by Neil. Really? He said, wouldn't it be cool if? And so 
um, I hear that and I go, yeah, that would be cool mm-hmm. if. Let's see if we can get there. Um, there was stuff that was suggested not so much by Michael T, but just by his character and the the set that Dave Blass, our amazing production designer, built um, early on in the season. We went, okay, we need our this season to end up there. Mm-hmm. And we need to pay that off. Um, hmm. So that kind of stuff develops. But I've just, I've just feel so blessed that uh, I've gotten to work with these actors. You know, listen, Matt Craven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, contractually has to be in everything I do. <laughs> he has a picture of me with a goat. No, but you know, we just, uh, we just love working together. And and frankly, there's a, a little hint of laziness on my part, which is. Well, I know that Neil can do this. I know that Michael T Absolutely. can do this. I know that Matt can do this. I know that Nick Cersei can do it. So why, you know, cast a wider net anyway? Well, I mean, it's also you get into that relationship and it becomes very easy to write for those yes. people. And it becomes enjoyable to write for those yes. people. It's freeing in a lot of ways. Um, you talked very briefly or you touched on some the learning curve of the first season. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What did you guys? Learn? Well, I mean, you know the big learning curve of the, that that boy died in the original pilot sure. we shot and all right. of that. Part of it was, and then Walton wasn't available that much. He was doing mm-hmm. Predators, so we had to kind of keep his character on the shelf to a degree until we got him back after Christmas, the actor, and then we skewed heavily into the serialized nature for the last four episodes mm-hmm. or so. Um. But, you know, we tried things and we found things out. We found that, you know, we had an episode where Raylan's trying to find out where this fixer has been. He thinks he's been kidnapped. Where is he? You know, we need more of a personal connection for him to pick up on a case like that. Unless it's truly a job for him to step out and do that. He really has to have a a, a strong connection. Um, We had the episode we called Hitler Paintings. which is a story that I've wanted to do since Boomtown. And they talked me out of it in Boomtown. <laughs> they couldn't talk me out of it here. And it became a very difficult episode. But, you know, we learned things from that. It's not as great when Raylan's going up against rich people. I'm, although that's something I might want to explore in the fourth season, but really go at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to breathe a little. It needs to breathe. We need to be more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, we were still finding our way then. And... Um, you know, we did the episode that was set in Southern California with Alan Ruck as this, uh, the uh, fugitive dentist. And, uh, you know, we did that kind of as a, a little bit of a gift to production, so they're not trying to fake Kentucky all the time. But, you know, people found that a little off-putting. It's like, well, where is this show set? So we learned a little something there. Now we could do that episode. I was going to say, you know, we like can go he's elsewhere. established. He's established, so but... So, you know, those were the kinds of things we learned. And we found that once we really focused down on Harlan in particular, but also Raylan and Boyd, mm-hmm. that's sort of where a lot of the show lives. Were you guys aware of the world building you're doing, uh, even in that first season as you're introducing characters and starting to expand the world? Or does you it know, just sort of happen incidentally? I, I, I think it, it both. I think yeah. that, again, our goal, our target is always Elmore. And, you know, you find characters from this book and peering in that book and showing up. And Road Dogs, he's got Don Navarro from Riding the Rap and Jack Foley from Out of Sight and uh, this other guy from La Brava. And they all come together, you know, somehow, you know, and and that's his story. Um, So we love that. We love the idea of these people, this being this world. And that's part of the fun of it. Mm -hmm. And again, it's also you get Stephen Root. And you get you know Rick Gomez playing our our, our uh, um, assistant U.S. attorney. Yeah. Um, 
man, let's bring them back. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. Okay. I mean, I could go for another hour on oh, all the stuff. But and Apparently, <laughs> as you can see, I am Chatty Cathy. You pull my string, and I do not stop the, talking. The uh, commentary tracks on the first season of Justified were the best film school or TV school, I think, for uh, people just starting out. Oh, great. They were just such a great course in storytelling and how a production is put together. Those well, maybe really we'll great. try and do them again for the third season because they... I forget there there was a rationale for why we didn't do them on the Were second they not? season. I haven't checked. I out think the it was just basically yet. let's save money. <laughs> That's fair. Which is always <laughs> a good rationale. That's fair. I get yeah. it. Uh, well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for really coming fun. in. I enjoyed it, and uh, the show's fantastic. Thanks. It kills me. Yeah. <laughs> now leaving nerdist.com.